Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series for advisors considering the independent space. Today's episode is Inside Baseball on Building and Growing an RIA Firm, a conversation with Marty Bicknell, CEO and President of Mariner Wealth Advisors. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com and on advisorhub.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you are not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page on our website. And if you find the content in this series to be useful and know others who could benefit from it, please feel free to share it widely. The RIA space has grown in massive proportions over the last several years, with a number of mega firms leading the pace through ambitious, acquiring practices, and smart recruiting of top talent. Yet it's those firms that are continually looking for new ways to serve their clients and grow their businesses, which are making the most waves in the space. They're building partnerships and investing in platforms to offer advisors under their umbrella the ability to do more with greater freedom and flexibility, while making it more attractive than staying within the brokerage world or starting their own firm. My guest on this episode seems to be going after all of the above in a big way. Marty Bicknell is CEO and president of Mariner Wealth Advisors, the $26 billion-plus firm that seems to be on a tear lately. For example, from January of 2019 through March of 2020, the Overland Park, Kansas-based RIA firm closed 11 acquisition deals. And in April of this year, Mariner announced a partnership with Dynasty Financial Partners to create Mariner Platform Solutions, supported by the middle and back office resources from Dynasty. Nationally ranked by Barron's as one of the top four RIA firms for the last four years, Marty says he's driven by a client-first mantra, guiding him to continue to look for new and better ways to serve his clients and grow the business. And it all began with just $300 million in assets in 2006. What started him on this journey of incredible growth from $300 million to $26 billion? What is he ultimately looking to achieve for Mariner and what's on the horizon? It's a great opportunity to get in on a candid conversation with the driving force behind one of the industry's leading RIA firms. So let's get to it. Marty, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Mindy. I appreciate it. Pleasure. Lots to talk about, so I want to jump right in. Let's start just by telling us about yourself. What led you to the founding of what's now $26 billion Mariner Wealth Advisors? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I was a pre-law major in college and thought I was going to go to law school and was very fortunate to become an intern at a single practitioner Edward D. Jones office. Absolutely fell in love with the business and moved to Kansas City from a small town in Kansas 
and went to work right out of school for a company called AG Edwards. Had a lot of success there. It was a great firm. And in 2006, uh, myself with seven other individuals decided it was time to go out on our own and start Mariner Wealth. But in 2006, that was really before the breakaway movement took hold. So not only was that a brave and courageous move, but a real out-of-the-box one. What gave you the courage? What was the driving force behind that to go independent in those days? Mindy, I'll tell you what's funny is in 2006, early 2006, late 2005, I truly didn't even know what an RIA was. And what was going on at AG Edwards was really unique. It was a 115-year-old firm that in 2001 got its first non-Edwards CEO. So for all that time, it was a publicly traded but family-ran business. In 2001, that changed. And I spent five years trying to figure out how I fit in that new culture. And I couldn't. I couldn't figure out a way to fit in. So I decided that it was time to be entrepreneurial and go start my own company. And in my research of figuring out the best way to do that, I stumbled upon the RAA concept and, you know, quickly tried to get up to speed as fast as I could. And, you know, there was a lot of people at Fidelity and Market Council who I can give credit to the speed of that, but it was an interesting time. For sure. And so we know that most great firms were born because the leaders were visionaries. There was a gap in the industry they were looking to solve for. What was the gap you were looking to solve for at the time? Our initial goal in the beginning was very simple, and that was to create an organization that we could be proud of again. And to me and to the individuals who came with me at the beginning, that was a simple thing that's actually on our wall when you walk in our headquarters, and that's the client first, the employee second, and the shareholder last. That concept we felt didn't exist in the wealth management financial services arena, and we wanted to create an organization that would attract people that believed in that. And you were willing to forego whatever recruiting packages the big firms were paying or whatever sort of ease of familiarity in a move from, say, one regional firm to another that might have existed at the time? I was because I spent a significant amount of time in conversations with those firms, and it was the same. They all were and are the same. And what's so great about the registered investment advisor world is there aren't two companies that are the same. There aren't two RIAs that do it the same way. And that, that you know, entrepreneurial elbow to elbow with clients way of solving clients' problems and or helping them achieve their goals is really what's unique and frankly, what I think is driving you know, everybody's path to that today. Well, I think you're right. Today, it's much more mainstream. In those days, it was out of the box as an understatement. But tell us about Mariner today. I mean, $26 billion under management certainly makes it a leading firm, but how many advisors, how many staff members, what does it look like internally? We have uh, 42 locations today, 325 advisors, and a little over 700 employees. Amazing. And who do you serve? How many relationships? What does the typical client relationship look like? 
we just crossed over 18,000 households. And one of the things that we talk a lot about, because we have so many advisors, so many locations, a lot of our advisors were brought to us through inorganic means. Mariner has never had a client minimum since our founding in 2006. So we think about taking care of our clients. You know, a lot of advisors go through a segmentation strategy where it's, you know, A, B, C, D, and the service level depends on what bucket they're in. And those buckets are determined by revenue. For us, we try to segment the advisor because we believe all clients deserve the same level of service, but that doesn't mean the same level of advice. Somebody with 300 grand is different than 3 million, which is different than 30 million. To have the advisor have that expertise in that segment, they become much more efficient and therefore can handle more households per advisor. And so that's really how we think about approaching that. And when you started the firm, did you set out to really build the mega empire, the sort of acquisition machine that that Mariner is today? Or was it really just sort of a focus on building it one client at a time? Yeah, it was. We did not even remotely have this in our minds. It was one client at a time. And as 2008, 2009 happened, you know, I often say, you know, in 06, when we started, had I known 08 and 09 were right around the corner, I probably wouldn't have had the nerve to leave. Um, Had that been the case, I would have missed the opportunity of my lifetime. I mean, 2008, 2009 was when we took a step back and said, there are a lot of large firms that are making decisions to stay alive and high quality individuals inside those organizations don't really like those decisions. So it was a time for us just to take a step back and just go acquire talent as fast as we could. Yeah. To be honest with you, if we fast forward the 12 years since the 08 financial crisis, we would say that not a whole lot has changed. In fact, we record this and the end of, I've lost track of time, but probably the end of month three or so of the coronavirus crisis and not a lot has changed. I mean, we're in the midst of a global health crisis and an economic crisis, and you've still got plenty of advisors, real talent that don't like the decisions that their firms are making, whether it be about the crisis or otherwise, and looking to get out in some way to either build their own or become something closer to independent than they are today. I agree with you completely. What's interesting is I've had a lot of conversations with people about the fact that I'm having more conversations. We've talked for the last three years about how jam-packed our pipeline is. I had no idea. I mean, it is the, the amount of people that are reaching out, you know, not all of them are at the point of making a decision, but everybody that I talk to wants to understand. And they want to understand whether, you know, it's something they go do on their own. They find a partnership, they find an intermediary, whatever the solution is. But there's an unbelievable number of people that are trying to solve for this. Well, that's how we see it as well. I am blown away and humbled, thrilled by the amount of connectivity, good conversations we are having. Not everyone will leave where they are. Not everyone's really looking to make a move. Not everyone wants to go independent, surely. Not everyone should go independent, surely. But the number of good conversations, which is what jazzes me and gets me up in the conversation, people that want to understand, that want to know 
that there is an alternative beyond just being a cog in a giant wheel, being an employee is incredibly um, enlightening for a lot of folks and it's driving a lot of good conversations. I agree with you. I think one of the other pieces of it is, though, is the freedom to serve as you see fit, to serve your client. Having the whole solution set in front of you and not being kind of pigeonholed into someone else's pre-approved way of handling it. Well, that freedom, flexibility, and control have become probably the three major drivers of movement. And where someone can justify a move from, say, a Merrill Lynch to a Morgan Stanley. Not that there's anything wrong with that because there are plenty of advisors that should work in that world because it's right for them. But where freedom, flexibility, and control, real freedom and control to serve clients the way they want to becomes the primary driver, then it's hard to justify a move from a Merrill to a Morgan. I agree. So I want to come back to that in a minute because I know you are doing some really interesting things to make Mariner more appealing to a larger swath of the population. But let's just circle back for a minute to a little bit about the primary characteristics, the things that actually differentiate Mariner from its competitors. So I get first and foremost, who do you think your biggest competitors are? There's probably not one name. I mean, it's different in in different markets. It's different depending on the level or segment of the client and the opportunity. But, you know, there's obviously the major firms, the Morgans and the Merrills that, that we run into in every market that we're in. The other large RIAs, you know, like a, a former United or Creative or Edelman, we run into in different markets as well. So it truly just depends from that perspective, but not not to overstep my bounds. Um, frankly, the offering and the model we've built, we really don't have competitors. So tell us about that. What's unique about the model? So I think there are several things that we feel differentiate us. And I guess the first way to say it is you know, bifurcation of duties or, or separation of duties. And there's a, a couple different ways we do this, but the first way is through business development. We separate business development from advice. So we have dedicated business development professionals that drive client opportunities to our wealth advisors. Now, it's really interesting to focus on this because our wealth advisors have to be strong point of self. They have to be able to explain our value proposition and how we're going to help that prospect achieve their goals. And so being able to convince them that they're the right advisor and we are the right firm we don't consider that business development. Business development is filling the funnel. And having our senior wealth advisors, high quality advice givers, not burdened with having to fill the funnel is number one, I think it's why we attract so many advisors and the number of advisors that we do. But number two, it creates an opportunity for seasoned business development professionals to also not get burdened by things that they're not doesn't really fit in their unique ability. So that separation has, has really worked strong for us. The other thing that we separate is investment advice from wealth advice. Investments are a component of wealth management, but they're just that, a component. So when value propositions are investment-centric, we think that they are lacking the majority of what our advisors do. 
So from the wealth perspective, you know, we want our advisors to be able to do taxes, do estate planning, traditional financial planning, all of those things. And to be able to do that, they can't be burdened from the investment research that takes place. So we centralize that and allow them to have plenty of choices and options from that perspective. So how does a firm like yours get to $26 billion? I know you're an extraordinary firm doing extraordinary things in a crowded and competitive REA marketplace. And I'm asking not just about Mariner, how did Mariner do it? But if you were giving advice to someone who is launching an independent firm today, or someone who's the principal of a $500 million firm who aspires to build more of an enterprise, what would your advice be on how you get there, how you really grow exponentially? Those really are two kind of separate things. To think about giving someone advice today versus the path that we went through, it's all about you know the time and the timing. And we had such a good opportunity coming out of 08 and 09 that we had a holding company structure back then that had a wealth division and an asset management division. And because of the volatility of the time, we were able to incubate and start organizations, firms inside our holding company that 10 years later were two, 10, and one was even $35 billion that were incubated from scratch in you know, the period of a crisis that we then went through you know, liquidity events with each one of them that allowed us to fuel the inorganic growth at the wealth division. So being innovative in a time of turmoil, um, much like we're going through today, it was really what allowed us to be able to fuel the growth as fast as we, we've done. To be able to stand back and, and give somebody advice on how they should go about it today without knowing and understanding their capabilities and their understanding of, of the opportunities that face them, that would be difficult. But what I would say is invest in people. There are a lot of RIAs that we meet with daily that are, for lack of a better word, they're just tight. It's a very profitable business, but not willing to take the risk and hire people. And you know, thinking about the separation of duties piece of it that I talked about before, I mean, hiring three or four people to test different areas, to be innovative, bringing in specialties of tax and or insurance and whatever those things are, but having the founders of businesses not be quite so risk adverse as a lot of leaders are today. Yeah. Be more big picture. So aside from how you do it, how do you think about it? If I'm the principal of a $500 million firm, or I'm a wirehouse advisor who's just going to be launching an RIA firm, and there are many of those now, A, when do you begin and how do you begin to decide? Am I better off just growing my practice into something really wonderful that I sell someday to a larger entity or any number of potential buyers? Or do I myself want to be the next Mariner? Do I want to build an enterprise? How do you think about that? Well, the first answer is you think about it. And depending on the individual, depending on risk tolerance, capabilities, those types of things. But I say on a very regular basis to our organization that culture is top 
down. Innovation is bottom up. So if you think about that and, and really what that means, setting the culture throughout the entire organization with all your individuals, that innovation is important, that you want innovation. Innovation can mean lots of different things. Innovation can mean just an idea that speeds up client onboarding. Innovation can be an idea that speeds up client acquisition. Innovation could be a product launch. Innovation can be small and it can be big, but making sure as a young organization in probably a limited number of people that innovation is important, you're thinking about it, and everyone inside your organization is thinking about it. Okay. So today, Mariner is both an RIA firm that manages money for its clients but also a serious acquirer or roll-up of individual independent practices. So what can you tell us about it? What is that strategy about? How does that strategy work? Why does it work for Mariner? You know, I think, you know, first, the strategy, it's a talent acquisition strategy, not necessarily just an AUM acquisition strategy. So we want talent. When we think about it, we don't want to be somebody's exit strategy. Um, We want to be their fuel for growth. And so we go out and look for people that the best way I like to describe it is the RAA industry is very fragmented. And most founders got into the business because they wanted to give advice. They wanted to be elbow to elbow with clients. They were good at it, so they grew. Then they wake up one day and they're dealing with technology and HR and all the stuff that compliance and the things that you have to deal with as an owner of an RIA and they stop growing. And for those individuals that wake up one day and say, I don't want to do that part of the business anymore. I want to get back to serving clients and get back to the growth aspect of the business. Those are the firms that we look for and that we attract. And what's in it for a prospective seller to join a firm with the size and scale of a mariner? There are several different things that that we talk about with them, and, and several of them we've talked about already, but being able to have innovative things um, that are being brought to you on a consistent basis, being able to have business development professionals, wealth teams, investment teams brought to you to help you do your job you know, more efficient. We have a division inside our organization that we call Advisor Solutions. So we, have, we do taxes in-house. We have 120 tax professionals at our advisor's disposal. Uh, we own a trust company. We have a, a, an insurance general agency. We have a boutique investment bank. So our closely held clients, um, can, we can help them through that transition and you know, not let a competitor in to do that. The innovation piece that I talked about before, it's important to be thoughtful about innovation from a client perspective. It's as or more important to be thoughtful about innovation from an attracting an advisor standpoint. No doubt. But here's, you know, look, for having conversations daily with business owners that are managing anywhere from, say, $100 million to a billion or even $3 billion, the number one thing that a business owner is loath to give up is their identity and their control and complete ownership. So the whole reason that these folks went independent in the first place was because they prized that freedom and control more than anything. What you're talking about in a sale 
is giving up that autonomy. And while too many, it's certainly appealing to offload the minutia, to you know, offload the things that they, they found themselves not necessarily wanting to do to get out of the kitchen. And while the access to innovation and more capabilities that they may not have access to today can be appealing, still, when it comes to the notion of giving up your baby, giving up control, that's hard. How do you think about that? Or how would you counsel someone to think about that? So when we've gone through the process, so we've done over 20 acquisitions on the wealth side since we started, our first one was in 2011. And, you know, the conversations that we have with, with these individuals, I mean, you're right about all the things that you said, but the big thing to think about is that, that practitioner mentality. The example I gave a few minutes ago about them wanting to serve clients, that's the part they want autonomy with. That's the part where they want an identity. Most of them that we end up partnering with or acquiring have decided that all that other stuff is too much. They're done with that piece of it and want to be a practitioner and want to be back to serving clients. I mean, to go in and, I mean, to really think about the different kind of models there are out there, Mariner is an employee-based model. So there's only one company, there's only one ADV, there's only one LLC. So everyone's part of the same organization and there's only one shareholder. So you're an employee of Mariner. That is different than being under a holding company structure like some of the competitors are where they leave you with a piece of the ownership and they leave you separate. How we differentiate ourselves from that model is we're going to allow you to be the best advisor that you can be and give you more tools and resources than anyone else can give you. We're going to help drive client relationships to you, and we're going to just let you do what you do for the client's sake. This is an extremely noble industry, and we get a lot of bad press, but there are a lot of advisors that simply want to take care of people. about Mariner as acquirer, if you're a seller. So you talk to Mariner and there's no arguing with the innovation and the size and the scale and the capabilities. But what about the worry that, okay, I'm the principal of a $300 million firm and I have my the choice of selling myself to a, or partnering with a billion dollar firm or partnering with a $26 billion firm. I worry that I will have more share of voice, a bigger seat at the table, more representation, more autonomy within a billion-dollar firm. Will I lose myself if I'm acquired by a $26 billion firm? You know, you think about it from the perspective of the way we view things is, is through locations. So if we're going into an acquisition and we've decided that that team's a team we want, that market that they're in becomes their market. So they are still in charge of, of the market they're in or the city they're in. But then being able to take a step back and say, okay, they, they have a voice. I mean, there are many voices, right? If we have 42 locations, but they have a voice, but they're still in control. We describe things, um, if you think about it, like being on stage. So there's in front of the curtain and behind the curtain, front stage and backstage. Front stage is the client experience. So they're in charge of the client experience. And that actually really motivates people and gets people excited that, you know, I get to wake up every day and just focus on client experiences 
and how to increase the number of client experiences versus being weighed down by all the other aspects of our business. But also knowing that I have an organization that is you know, extremely well-funded that is bringing all of these things to us on a consistent basis and that believes in innovation being bottom up and is going to listen to the innovative things I have to say and likely sponsor them. That's the message that we've given that has led to those 20 plus acquisitions. Yeah. And at the end of the day, Mariner is not going to be right for every seller and every seller is not going to be right for Mariner. That's the good news. It's good news for clients and good news for the industry is that competition is what drives innovation and excellence and all of it. And at the end of the day, someone that prizes total control over everything is not going to want to sell, period, let alone to a firm the size of Mariner. So we always say you got to kiss a lot of frogs before you meet your prince. And that's certainly true in the game of M&A. But of the 20 firms that you've acquired since 2011, can you give us an example just to make tangible of one or more of the firms you've acquired and how they've grown since partnering with Mariner? Sure. I think the a good example would be one of our very first ones. I can't remember if this was the second or third acquisition, but it was really, really close to the beginning. And it was a firm in Tulsa, Oklahoma. That time it was called Adams Hall. Um, Janice Shoulders was the founder and CEO, and she's still with us today. The organization has grown from low double-digit employee count to close to 70 or 80 people today. In, you know, They've expanded from Tulsa to Oklahoma City to Amarillo, Texas. They have a tax division inside the organization that has 30 or more individuals. They have a retirement planning focus that, that now I think has three individuals inside it. So just the Jana's ability and desire to say, I have your support and you have my back and you're going to allow me to go out and do these things. And then her ability to execute on them has really what's led to that growth. So that I would, I mean, they're almost $3 billion today and they were five or 600, if I remember right, when we acquired them. Amazing. And actually you took the words right. That was my question is how big were they when you acquired them and where are they today? That's amazing. So. What was appealing to you about acquiring any one of those 20 firms? What are the kind of characteristics or metrics you look for in an acquisition target going forward? You know, it's more about the people. So it's a a talent acquisition strategy. So, you know, when we go in, we want to make sure that there is a deep bench of talent that we have the ability to continue to build around. We say often, and I've already said it once today is we don't want to be someone's exit strategy. That doesn't mean that we won't acquire an organization that shortly after the founder wants to retire. It just means there's got to be a team of two to four to six people that we want to back, we want to support. As you said, you talk to a lot of firms, there's a shortage of RIAs in our industry that have built and supported the next gen. And and so frankly, I mean, those are the the firms we're looking for. And do you expect in terms of valuation or how you'll think about structuring deals for acquisitions going forward, do you expect that the COVID crisis will impact valuations or your appetite to do deals going forward? 
Not for us. Our acquisition model is relatively simple. And there's a, there's a lot of advice that gets given in this industry um, on different ways to think about running pro formas and pricing entities. And for us, it's just really simple. We want a cash on cash return of our invested dollar. And it's just simple math to understand the earnings that that entity is pulling off. And that leads us to a multiple. That multiple is plus or minus 5% for all 20 plus deals. So what really changes after that is the go forward perspective. And we have an incentive plan at Mariner. It's a basic, it's a phantom stock program. And once we make a determination of your contribution to growth going forward, those units are distributed based upon your contribution to growth. So that's really what people are looking to for the future and understanding when we acquire them, that check is for the past. Now we're going to provide you incentive for the future, which is totally based on Mariner. And can you share with us how you think about deal structures in terms of multiples? So say for, let's do for a $500 million firm and a billion dollar firm. So 500 to a billion would be relatively the kind of the same multiple. Today, that would be in the five to seven range. Five to seven times EBITDA, yes? Correct, correct. And what would drive that difference would be, typically would be growth rate. Mm -hmm. So if if the firm's growing significantly, it's going to push it to the higher end of that. Um, If they're not, it's going to be the lower end of that. Once you get in the two to three billion dollar range, multiples are going to move up in the eight or nine. And then, you know, way above that, they start skyrocketing. Right. And how about, say, $300 million? $300 million, there are firms that will still look at it as in the five to seven range, depending on the talent of which they're getting. If mm-hmm. it, it, I mean, if it's an exit strategy, it is going to be closer to the 5% or five times, sorry. But we have acquired organizations I mean, we just acquired one in New Jersey that was $400 million that we paid near the upper end of that multiple because they're young, hungry, and they want to grow. And so that's what we looked for in that. Mm. You know, it's interesting. You just said something that struck me. A lot of the advice we hear, particularly for a young firm with a long runway, is don't sell your upside too soon. So when you talk about a young, growing firm... Was it hard for the sellers of that firm to wrap their head around selling to Mariner now versus waiting until they grew another billion on their own? It's really not because of the Mariner incentive units. And the way that those are allocated and given out for somebody who is growth-oriented and understands how to drive their own growth and utilization of the resources around them, it doesn't take long for them to understand what the value of those are going to be worth. And the notion, what we tell people all the time is that the onus is on the buyer to prove to you that you will be able to grow faster, better, more efficiently with them than without them. I agree completely. So one of the things that we do when we're going through this process of 20 plus acquisitions, we have 325 advisors today, 20 locations were started from scratch. So we recruited individuals to start those. So depending on who you are and what's important to you, I always tell people to go on my website, pull up the map and and pick 
two or three locations they want to talk to and we'll obviously facilitate for them and let, and let them discuss what their experience was, what they were told and how that ended up working out for them. Because obviously, I mean, that's the best way to tell our story is have somebody explain what they lived through. And we're always, people always ask, well, give me three names. I'm like, no, you pick. That way you know I'm not cherry picking. Yeah. Look, at the end of the day, I have to imagine that every seller, every one of those 20 sellers grappled with the same dilemma. Do I want to give up control? Is there enough upside? Does the downside of giving up control, is it outweighed by the potential upside? And that's what anyone thinking about selling their firm should be thinking about for sure. Agreed. So let me ask you a question. I know that technology plays a huge role in the enterprise you've built. And I want to talk about that for a bit. So what can you share with us about your views on technology and how it fits into the overall Mariner value proposition? Well, it's interesting because I would probably give you a different answer pre-COVID than I will post-COVID. I mean, I think we all spend a lot of time worrying about our tech stack and worrying about all the different components of that. And once a firm is above a certain size, I think tech is tech. I mean, we all have you know, a great CRM system. We all have the right financial planning software and all the different components um, that we're trying to enable our advisors to work with and, and enable them to serve cl- their clients better. Again, once you're a certain size, those become have-tos. I mean, you have to provide those things. What's been interesting for us through this pandemic is we rolled out a bunch of other things. We have something that's called Workplace, which is a Facebook product that's basically an intranet. But it's an intranet that works like Facebook. So you can have groups, you can have messaging, you post different things and really looks and feels just like Facebook, but it's obviously for work. And different things about planning ideas or, or tax information or tax news, it works really simple. But then we made a move to box.com. And so when we were going through this and do, going through the stay at home, we had, I'm going to tell you, it was 30% penetration through our organization of these tools. Um, we spent gobs of money on them and tried all kinds of training to get our people throughout the organization to use them, and we just weren't making any progress. Well, day two, we had 100% participation. Everybody figured them out, and now nobody wants to live without them. That's right. We are having hundreds of conversations with advisors, no matter where they are, talking about how, look, just even you know, video capabilities have always existed. Advisors always could have used it, but just never did for one reason or another. And now people don't want to live without it. And so you're 100% right. And I think that's actually one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that it forced us all out of our comfort zone to think more creatively and innovatively. And hopefully that will stick and certainly be to the benefit of clients and the industry as a whole. Yeah, I agree. I hope so. So Marty, I want to pivot to your recently announced combination or joint venture with Dynasty Financial Partners. So can you tell us a little bit about that? What was the motivation behind it and what is it? Sure. So the partnership is on a new entity, new organization that 
that we launched called Mariner Platform Solutions. And Mariner Platform Solutions is basically a platform offering for advisors that won't become Mariner employees. So you think of Diamond Wealth Management, you're an IAR, an investment representative of Mariner Platform, but doing business under your own brand, your own entity, you're running your own P&L. So what we discovered was in 2019, I personally talked to two, over 200 advisors. We hired 50. In most years, we'll hire 25 to 30. Last year was a big, big year. Um, so all of those individuals that we didn't hire, maybe half of them or a third more of them really wanted to be a part of our organization and have our tools and resources, but the employee-based model just wasn't right for them. So MPS allows us to attract those types of advisors that still want to remain independent, but then they have access to everything under the Mariner umbrella. Yeah. Well, there's no question the category of platform providers that has become a major part of the ecosystem to support the breakaway advisor is probably the fastest growing segment. People that want to be independent or remain independent, but want to be able to access a platform and an infrastructure and middle office and back office capabilities that are superior to either what they could build on their own or what they currently have access to. That is correct. That's what we kept hearing in all our conversations. And it was a simple conversation that led us here. I mean, one, one advisor back in early 2019 said, why don't you just build a platform for me? And it really was that simple of a conversation. And then we just turned on our innovation switch and, and went out to figure out the best way for us to, to deliver this. So where does Dynasty fit in? If you think about what we've built at Mariner Wealth Advisors, all aspect of it is done in-house. And because I have 325 advisors in 42 cities, I didn't want to burden my back office teams with the launch of MPS. So we went out to try to find a partner to partner with to go down this route. So we hired Dynasty to be the middle and back office component of Mariner Platform Solutions. So those advisors that join MPS get both Mariner and Dynasty. And that was one of my questions. How does it not clog up your system? Would launching this in any way impact the service model that your existing advisors or acquisitions would have? And I guess that the answer is no. Yeah, the answer is no. That was a fear of all of ours from the beginning and something that we kind of vowed that we would make sure to solve. And the other answer was just build a second internal organization to handle it. And that just didn't make sense either. Mm -hmm. So the process of going through this has led to a great relationship between Dynasty and Mariner. And, you know, one of the, the, the things that was not foreseen, and uh, you've probably read, I, I ended up making an investment into Dynasty yeah. as an organization because of what I believe, I mean, this industry I think the growth is just beginning. I mean, we've talked about, you know, for the last several years, how crazy the growth's been. I still think we're in early innings. Uh, me too. I don't disagree with you even a little. And one of the questions I have, so this breakaway movement, the diaspora of advisors sitting in traditional employee-based brokerage firms, probably a lot in the wirehouse world. How I don't know that that's been a huge part of your talent acquisition strategy or at least to what degree was it, I guess is my question. 
but I'm wondering if this partnership with Dynasty makes you better suited to go after the breakaway advisor. It absolutely makes us better suited. And that was one of the driving forces. So of the 50 advisors that we hired in 2019, five of them um, came from a wire. So probably talked to 120 to 130 advisors last year from that channel. That's just not the first step. And that's not to say that people that go to MPS won't eventually end up at Mariner Wealth Advisors. They just might. But giving them the ability to make that jump but have the support is exactly what we're trying to solve for. Yeah. We work with a whole lot of wirehouse advisors. And the mentality is, is that if I'm going to be willing to give up, either make a move and disrupt the status quo. So I'm going to move it all. And then I'm, if I'm going to move, I'm going to give up access to a very robust and rich transition package. Then I want to be fully independent. So it doesn't surprise me that only five out of 50 came from the wirehouse world because that's a very big leap for them. But Dynasty has become much more of sort of a household name for a lot of um, wirehouse advisors. And I imagine that giving wirehouse advisors a whole lot of comfort about what it means to be independent and associated with Mariner, getting sort of the best of both worlds. You're exactly right. And if you think about the majority of the mentality of advisors in that channel, even though they work for a large organization, they're all independent in how they run their business. The clients they have, they got those clients. The teams they work on, they built those teams. And the way I like to think about it is we make this analogy a lot. If you think about your average trust officer inside a regional trust company, those individuals are going to have a hard time convincing someone to be a client. They're handed clients from the bank, but they give good advice and they never lose the client, but they need someone to provide clients for them. There are people inside the wires that are second and third seat on teams that have a dynamic leader that we've recruited because we provide a steady steam of clients. Yeah. I want to pivot a little to your thoughts on building a firm. If you were talking to either a nascent firm owner, someone in the early innings of building a firm, or a prospective breakaway advisor, what advice would you give them with respect to a few things? So let's, number one, how should they think about getting access to capital? So I think about it this way. In, while they're in the beginning stages, they need to concentrate on their client experience making sure that their value proposition is explainable and they need to grow. And as they're growing, making sure that they're reinvesting, because I mean, this is a very profitable business and industry, but making sure that they're reinvesting. So at, at some point, they've got to get to a certain scale. And once they get to that scale, then they have decisions to make from that perspective. They can go and get, you know, first step in my mind is probably getting a line of credit getting non-intrusive capital that you can speed that growth up. And then obviously they need to get to the point that where if they you know want to give up some equity for outside capital, if they want to give up control, those types of things. But the first component of it, I think, is reinvesting your own profits so that you can get on a growth trajectory that somebody cares about. 
And how about the notion of taking on an investor out of the gate? The notion of do I build it by myself and either take on sell equity or take on debt? Or you know, do I bring on a minority partner? So I think that it's a great idea for some. And if you think, I mean, number one, it's taking some risk off the table. Two, it's providing some capital so that you can do things at maybe a little bit faster clip than, than the first way that I described. The one thing to think about is they have a voice and making sure that you pick somebody that, that you feel like will allow you to do the things that you need to do and to be innovative. And to be innovative, you have to make mistakes. And that's when you see the true aspects of a partner is when you go through those time frames. Mm-hmm. I remember Mark Tabergian said a long time ago, he said that selling equity is the most expensive form of financing. And he was a proponent of taking a loan before selling equity. What do you think about that? I agree with that. That's kind of what I was trying to describe before. So I would go the debt route first, but I would make sure that the leverage is within reason, especially, you know, given what, what we've just gone through, making sure those ratios are ratios that you can live with. But at the end of the day, when there is market pullback or there's growth opportunities, there's a limit to debt. There's no limit to equity. Right. And how about how to think about when and how to add inorganic growth to the mix? When and how should a business owner think about becoming acquisitive? You know, for me, I think it's when you've made the transition from being a practitioner to being an operator. And our industry is full of practitioners. And I think certainly less than 10%, but maybe even less than 5% of firms are actually operators where there's a dedicated CEO uh, that you know doesn't serve clients, um, that is there to run a business. Doing an acquisition or a merger of equal size firms to gain, you know, maybe it's location reasons, maybe it's service offering, those are awesome ideas and, and people, I mean, should do them, but that's not being a serial acquirer. And all of those things should happen and should continue. But if really you want to be a true business that's in the business of recruiting or acquiring, you have to have dedicated people to it. Mm. And how about your thoughts about establishing an internal succession plan versus selling to a third-party acquirer? So I think it depends on the goals and the talent. If you have strong, talented individuals um, and, and they can carry on, carry the business on. Um, and it's, you know, something that you feel called to do. I think it's great. I think it's an incredible way uh, of, of helping those who helped you. I don't know about you, but I've seen the number of those dramatically decrease with the amount of third-party capital that's been flooded into our business. And because it's pushed, number one, has pushed multiples higher, but number two, it's made the ease of a transaction more apparent to people. Yeah. I think also as the M&A has been quite frothy and the more frothy it is, the more appealing it is for people to sell to a third-party buyer. Yes. 
So let me ask you a couple other questions. I could go on all day, but I won't keep you, I promise. It's mind-blowing how much the RIA space has grown in the past decade. I mean, you and I just both agreed that we think that this growth is in the early innings. So what do you think is the best, the next big thing for the industry, the RIA spaces? You know, I think the first component of it is the acquisition pace is going to continue. It's probably going to continue to grow. The amount of new advisors into the space is going to continue. I mean, you probably know the statistic better than I do, but the last three years, the number of acquisitions in the RIA space should have depleted the number of RIAs, but the number of RIAs continue to grow and outpace those being bought out by, by people starting from scratch. I think that continues. You know, the one thing that I would love to be able to put a stamp on this and tell you what exactly it looks like and who it is. But there's going to be, in my opinion, two or three of these large household organizations that truly come into our space and that try to build a national RIA. And frankly, I think they will be successful at it. And then for sure, I believe that there's going to be four or five existing firms today that are going to continue to grow like crazy. And and we call, you know, the groups that I mentioned before, the Mariners, the Creatives, United, Edelman, I mean, we call them national firms. We're not true national firms yet, in my opinion. I mean, we're big for RIA standards, but we're not big. The two or three large organizations that you think will come into the space, do you think that that's the Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and Maryland UBS, or are you referring to something else? No, that's exactly who I'm referring to. Yeah. Obviously, with Goldman's acquisition of United, I mean, they see it. But, you know, it's not new for Goldman. This is not their first step in, you know, the RIA space. But whether it's UBS or, or Morgan, I think one of those or both of those likely make an announcement in the next 12 months. And why haven't they done it thus far? We know that early on in the breakaway movement, as they began to lose top advisors, they sort of blamed it on a one-off. But there is absolutely no denying the impact that attrition to the loss of advisors to the independent space has had on even if it's not, you know, from a quantity perspective, the percentage of advisors that leave is still not that great as compared to the whole. But the PR bonanza, when you watch a $3 billion team leave to go independent or a $2 billion team leave to go independent, it is undeniable. So what's taken them so long? And how successful do you think they will be if they do it? You know, I think part of the reason that that's taken them, I mean, it's just traditional big company bureaucracy in getting everyone aligned in the thinking. Without mentioning names, I mean, I've talked to CEOs of those organizations and within the last five years and had to explain what we do. Yeah. So as much as we want to talk about the impact we're making, how fast we're growing and how big we are, we weren't big enough that they even noticed yet. Right. And now I think that's starting to change and that you know they need to figure out a solution and an ability to provide advisors to be able to do it underneath their umbrella. And I think they'll start acquiring firms like you saw with United. I think that's going to happen as well. 
Yeah. The problem is, I think that they would love to do that today. I know that they would. The problem is there is an enormous culture clash between the mindset of an advisor who is a business owner and independent and an advisor who wants to be an employee of a major firm. And that's the thing that will have to be addressed. But one final question, because we're coming up on an hour or a little more than that, and I could go on all day, but I promise to let you go. So what does the end game look like for Mariner? Will Mariner ever become the seller and not the buyer? The terrible answer is I don't know. Mariner doesn't need to sell to have capital to grow. The profitability of the firm obviously provides for everything that our employees need and my family would ever need. The thing that I think about is I want to build an organization that goes way beyond Marty Bicknell, that is here for generations to come. In trying to figure out what that ownership looks like and who are the right people to take that forward, and it's something I'm spending time on, but I, there's no clear answer. There's no you know light bulb shining on something that's saying, this is it, Marty. So I'm still looking for that. And you know what? You don't have to know. That's the beauty of being an independent business owner is you get to sort of chart your own course and it's exciting to watch as an outsider. So I thank you again for all your time and your wisdom and your insights. And we're excited to continue to watch the innovative things that Mariner does and hope you'll join me again at some point. I'd be happy to. It's been a pleasure, Mindy. Thank you. What a privilege it was to get to hear from one of the industry's top CEOs. Marty Bicknell built Mariner into not only one of the largest RIA firms, but also one of the best. I thank you for listening. And I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. These written pieces are an ideal way to stay informed about what's going on in the wealth management space without expending the energy that full-on exploration may require. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 908 879-1002 or these days on my cell at 973-476-8578 or always by email mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. And a special thanks to AdvisorHub.com for sharing this podcast with your viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence. Independence.